brace. Mm-hmm. I miss recording in person. Me too. Uh, you know, this whole recording by screen thing, it just feels so neoliberal. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> it's like, because like now I'm working for, from home and it's just like. You know, you got the email job. I know. It's so fucking neoliberal. <laughs> I'm <laughs> say it, say it. Work got me feeling hella neoliberal yeah, today. This, yeah, hell yeah. This work from home pussy got me feeling hella neoliberal. Hello, everyone. Hi, uh, I'm Brace. <laughs> Low energy Brace here. The Coke wore off. The oh Coca-Cola. I drank yeah, it cola. at 3.30, now it's 6. I'm tired now. Oh, my God. Hello, everyone. I'm Liz. Oh, now you're low energy, too? I'm just trying to meet you halfway, buddy. We are joined by Young Chomsky, who's ensconced in darkness right now, lit only by the it glow really of his is. computer screen. Very dark. Very Bright dark. white t-shirt, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. And a weird uh, symbol on it, but I don't know. I got to get into that. Uh, the podcast is called True and On. Yes, True and On. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the end of her story. We are finally, finally. <laughs> Declaring the end as, of. Yeah. As Operation Car Wash was first put into practice <laughs> on taking out Dilma, we have, we have subsequently, my spider organization, not the spider network, although it does share every single member of the same, that oh spans the globe has systematically taken out Theresa May. We got Angela Merkel coming next. We prevented Hillary Clinton from being president. Uh, we our project is never ending because if history has to end, we're telling for years too. That's very cute. That's very funny. Um, we're doing a talking one today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we got an interview. Um. Let's just get into it. Having finally battered our way through columns of gyrating asses to loud, pulsating reggaeton music, which I assume... Is what people gyrate to down there. I'm not very well traveled. We have made it to what we call the Sao Paulo Forum 2. Uh, because due to time constraints, we couldn't come up with a different name. So we figured it, it would work too. Joining us at this forum, we have Alex. Oh, God forgive me for what I'm about to say. Alex Hokely. Uh, writer and research, ba- I got a thumbs up for that. Writer and researcher based in Sao Paulo, co-host of the Alpha Bunga Bunga Global Politics Podcast, and co-author of the forthcoming book, The End of the End of History. This is the end of the beginning of the interview, Alex. What's happening, baby? Thank you for joining us. Um, can you repeat that? I couldn't hear you over the very loud <laughs> reggaeton music in the background. It's just constant here. It's not even Brazilian music. It's imported, but they just do not stop playing it. Um, yeah, I'm, do- I'm I, well, thank you. 
<laughs> for those who can't see, there is like an Escher uh, type like uh, image in the back of of Alex of just butts <laughs> on butts on butts on butts stacked. <laughs> That bit is correct, actually, yeah. What a weird job we all have. Okay. Well, we have a lot to get into with you, including talking about uh, not just your forthcoming book, like Brace mentioned, but a piece you have in American Affairs this month called The Brazilianization of the World. But before we get into that, because you're in some follow, I want to take this as an opportunity to kind of talk to you about what's going on down there. Um like oof, uh, the, the last time we even kind of talked about Brazilian politics was when, a long time ago. We had Vince Bevins on the show um, where we were sort of just talking about, uh, I mean, what was like sort of the beginning of the Bolsonaro administration's reaction to COVID. And now sort of, we're, I think we're almost like a year out from when we talked to Vince and I mean, so much has happened, but also not so much has happened <laughs> in that way um, with the with the state's response. It's been a p- pretty horrific to witness. Um, I, 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 you know, I'm happy that you're doing well down there. What can you tell us about what's going on? I mean, it's just a slow bleed in the sense of both politically and socially in terms of the actual epidemic uh, or pandemic. Yeah, that was about outdated to say epidemic. But the mm-hmm. um, but the reality is that you have this terrible way in which you become accustomed to completely awful social conditions so that we're now at, I think, 2,000 deaths uh, per day across the country. So it's a country of 210 million, but nevertheless, that's a very high death rate. And that seems like, oh, things can go back to normal. Things are okay because we're not at 4,000 where we were about a month and a half ago. But if we cast our minds back to June last year, we were at a thousand and that was a social catastrophe. Um, so, you know, it's just this ability right, of society right. to sadly kind of get on with things and just accustom made itself to just uh, a whole series of awfulness. And I mean, you know, the, the worst of the crisis in Manaus, so which is like the capital city of Amazonas state, right? Smack bang in the middle of the Amazon, but it's a big city of 2 million people. Um, where, you know, there are people dying in hospital uh, hallways without enough oxygen. There was an oxygen shortage and the government didn't really lift a finger to do anything to resolve that. And then you have, you know, the broader context of the federal government being still sort of denialist or basically, I mean, its whole rhetoric is just diversionary as much as possible Um, and playing macho, pretending that the thing doesn't exist, or if you do care about getting ill, you're a bit of a pussy or whatever it might be, right? Um, So, I mean, we could obviously get into whether we think lockdown would be the right policy and how it should be approached or whatever. But the point is, is that the government has been utterly callous, deliberately so, um, in dealing with it. So it's been been left up to state governors. um, And, you know, Brazil's a federal system. It's a bit like the US in that regard. Um, But obviously, they don't have the same capacities as the federal government do to deal with it. And you haven't really had any leadership from the federal government either. Um, And, you know, the biggest crime of it all is the vaccination thing. Because, you know, you can take different positions on, you know, how much social distancing can work, how much you should do lockdowns, what are the policies you should pursue, testing, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. all that stuff. But everybody knows vaccination is the one thing that you can and must do. And there is actually now proof, not just insinuations or suggestions or allegations, but actual proof on paper that the government had multiple attempts to or multiple offers to buy vaccines. Um, So, for example, it was offered the Pfizer vaccine three times and all three times it said, no, we don't want we're not interested. 
So, I mean, that's just criminal. And there's a congressional investigation on now uh, looking into the government's mishandling of the COVID crisis. It's not clear whether it'll lead to anything. There's been a whole range of different congressional inquiries in the past that have led to nothing, uh, ended in pizza, uh, as I put it in the Brazilianization right. piece, uh, which I can explain a bit, I guess, what that means a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at the very least, it's putting pressure on Bolsonaro. And so he's even... Um, you know, having to maybe adapt slightly his rhetoric and approach, but not really. I mean, ultimately, um, it's a situation which whatever comes out of the congressional inquiry, politically, everybody is kind of happy to just let him bleed because no one wants to take over. No one wants to take over the situation, right. not just the pandemic, but economically. Yeah. So uh, even the left, the, the PT, the Workers' Party, is happy to just let him bleed there. Yeah, I'm interested in what you think of... Uh the kind of the you know the changing nature of the Bolsonaro regime. Elections are when next year. Yeah, at the October twenty twenty two. And he's still strikingly, po I mean, surprisingly popular, right? Um, yeah, it's something like twenty five percent, thirty percent of support, something like that. It's his hardcore, which is probably right. not going to wither away. Right, right, right. I think what's been at least to me what's interesting is actually, well, a couple of things. Trying to follow what's going on there with the kind of like who is standing by him and who's kind of like standing down. It seems like there was a ton of military members who, who all kind of like exited recently um, while some of his economic ministers are staying. And my understanding is that he's really activated the police as his wing, as opposed to the military, which is the sort of like, I think what people would historically think of as, you know, I mean, in echoes of the dictatorship, the the kind of like usual like strongman move, yeah. but the federal police there seem like out of fucking control. Well, yeah, and it's not just the federal police, and in fact, it's probably even less the federal police than the military, the, state poli police. the military police, which are under state okay. command, right? Um, and they're yeah, a mili yeah. complete militarized force. So the whole the formation of troops of, of soldiers, right, as they're even called, uh, is completely militarized and really brutal. Um, so, you know, you have like huge numbers of police suicides, and as well as the fact of the more obvious fact that they kill a load of people. Um, right. They yeah. run death squads, especially in Rio State, which is the worst of it, but it's hard yeah. by no means an exception in Brazil. Um, and that is the hardcore of his base. But there's suggestions that especially lower ranks of the military are, you know, back him as well. Um, so... The military, the high, the top brass, try to kind of distance themselves from him and try to cast themselves as sensible um, people who have the greater interests of the nation, who are not so divisive and so on. So they play that sort of card, but they're the ones still guaranteeing his regime. So it's not as if um, they can, you know, somehow step away from the from that thing. It's he he is also their baby. Um, so there's that, but it's also I think important to recognize how his the pillars of his support have changed. So he, he was elected on several pillars and they almost each ministry or the important ministries were handed out to kind of different bases of support for him. So you had the financial elite who were backing him and who have the economy super minister who's been completely neutered now, mm. right? Um, which shows in some way the way that he's lost even, um, you know, Brazil's Wall Street, which is referred to by the metonym of Faria Lima, which is a kind of avenue in Sao Paulo. So he's lost them. You had the hardcore anti-corruption warriors who um, right, backed Sergio right, Moro, yeah. who's the inve lead ju uh, investigating judge of the anti-corruption investigations. Um, he got he quit the Bolsonaro administration. And so that 
has been sort of sloughed off. Um, the evangelicals are still really hardcore with him, um, which is important, like a very important part of his base. And you've got the kind of crazy culture warriors, but that's not socially yeah. substantial, right? That's not like a mass base. Um, that's just a bunch of wackos on the internet. Um, <laughs> so it's been withered down to what it, to the military and the police, but also to what's called in Brazil, the Centrão, like the big center. And it's not the center at all. It's like the worst old corrupt patrimonialist elites um, from various different states um, mm. and especially kind of smaller states and the more rural states, but not just, right? And he was elected saying, I'm going to do away with this, um, as it's called in Brazil, Tomaladaka, which is basically uh, give a bit of give and take, horse trading, right? I'm not going to play this old congressional game of pork spending and whatever. Of course, he's been completely drawn During back into swap. that. Because he's he is a product of that. He's That's where he's from. He's from a, one of, of these course. dictatorship era parties. Um, so, you know, uh, so that's basically what his support is now. And he's kind of in the pocket of the Centro and having to hand out a lot of pork to keep them on side and stop him being impeached. I mean, he should have been impeached by now. And the reason he hasn't is just because he's been able to kind of, uh, you know, hand, give handouts to, to, to his congressional supporters. You mentioned the situation in Rio, and I don't know how many people in the state saw, but a really horrific scene a couple of weeks ago where the cops came in and just slaughtered like an entire favela that under the guise of saying it was a bunch of drug dealers or whatever. I mean, it was like, um, I mean, just like, fuck, I don't even know how else to describe it. It's fucking brutal. And the social media footage is horrifying. Um, and it's interesting because I was talking to someone about it and, and it really is like in that kind of situation, you know, a lot of people have said, where's the left in Brazil? Where's the left in Brazil? And so with, with the situation as um, degrading as it is, in especially in a place like Rio, it's not hard. To, I mean, it's fucking terrifying, right? I mean, what do you, what, what can, what, I, I don't really, I mean, I don't really have a point other than to, to kind of like say, like, I, I saw you on social media, on t- social media, on Twitter. I don't know why I said that, like a grandpa. <laughs> I mean, I am kind of a grandpa, but I saw you on Twitter once refer to it as necroliberalism, which I thought was like a very cute little kind of novelty and that there is something there that is very nihilistic. I know people have sort of talked about that in the, in the U S and there's of course something to talk about that there. I, I, I'm one who said, who tends to think that there's much more to compare between Brazil and the U S than say um, the U S and European States for a whole host of reasons. Some of which that you kind of get into in this American affairs piece actually um, but there is that sort of like, I, I mean, there's the violence and the kind of, um, degradation of the state, but then also just the, I, I think the left really doesn't know what to do like yeah. at all. And so you see this sort of like, oh, maybe Lula could come back, which maybe he can, I don't know, but it is sort of an interesting, um, of weird thing weird sort of thing to hang your hat yeah. you know to hang your hopes on no i mean it's it's not at all a grappling with brazil's social reality or its historical development or anything like that it's just like the way i put it is that the 22 election 2022 election between lula and bolsonaro will be a choice between terminal decline and a death spiral so you know which do you choose mm. um i'm not a lesser evil guy normally but um next year i very much will be and i'll be voting for lula because it's provides yeah. some degree of kind of stabilization but i mean with regard to the violence um yeah there's this massacre in jacarezinho of favela in rio where i think 20 people were killed and just to give it a sense of 
the way that this stuff is treated and normalized is that they were saying, you know, the reporting was like, oh, but and several of them, you know, hadn't weren't even on the suspects list or several several of them hadn't ever yeah, been arrested yeah, yeah, before. Yeah. And it's like, but it, who cares? You can be have been arrested before yeah. and be a, it's suspected of being a drug dealer. That still doesn't mean you should be summarily shot by what is effectively a death squad. Um, so there is just a normalization of that. And, you know, it was a big outrage for a day or two on social media. And by the next day, the, the conversation moved on and was back to talking about the congressional inquiry on COVID. So mm. it is just sadly normalized. And also to relate it back to COVID, the reason in some ways that there hasn't been even more outrage over the number of deaths is just because Brazil is accustomed to that sort of brutalization, you know, the 60 plus mm-hmm. murders a year. And so in that context, um, especially from the perspective of the elite who kind of wash their hands of it and aren't really bothered about that level of of, uh, of death, you know, the, the COVID thing can also be naturalized. Like, yeah, well, you know, it's a disease. What are you going to do? I think that's a good that's a good segue into this um, into your peace and American affairs, the Brazilianization of the world. I don't know if people are familiar with this term Brazilianization. This is kind of, I mean, interestingly enough, right? This this um, this idea gets kind of, uh, I, I mean, like proffered what back in was it 2003 essay 2002 yeah did a 2004 essay by a brazilian philosopher who kind of really advances this idea and tries to develop it right which i you know i think it's interesting to kind of you know in this way that you're here talking about it again when this was an idea that was um developed when pt was in power right yeah. um and so there is a kind of like recursive nature there but can you um Walk us through this idea a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, well, firstly, my I came to it because I was been thinking and talking about it like on, on BungaCast as well about how the global north is becoming like the global south. And I was thinking more like mm. obviously – like obviously you have inequality, which is the kind of obvious thing and uh, dualized cities, right, where you have an increasingly gentrified city center and mm-hmm. poor push to the outskirts and, and, and the hinterlands and so on. Um, but also just in political terms, that politi- the politics seems a lot – more disorganized than it used to be. And I don't just mean in contrast to kind of like the 90s and 2000s where there was no politics, but also in terms of the post-war era where things were pretty regularized, fought a more ideological lines, um, and you had kind of firm bases of support. You didn't have as much electoral volatility if you were working class. I mean, certainly less so in the US, but if you like think about the UK, which I know better, like uh, you know, you're working class, uh, you're, you work in industry, you vote for the Labour Party, you're part of your local Labour Party, whatever, right? And, and so you don't have this kind of mad volatility that you have nowadays with these populist uprisings and things like that happening all over the place. So that kind of element looks like kind of more like Brazil, where you don't, the only kind of real ideological pole in society is PT, like is the Workers' Party, because all mm-hmm. the other parties Bar maybe one on the center right, which is kind of the neoliberal center right, but you know, even there, it's not a, even a so much of a proper party. The only real party in Brazil is PT, like in terms of a mass organized organic party. All the rest are rent-seeking parties uh, who owe their allegiance to the state and have more in common with one another than they do with their the people they're supposed to represent, who they don't really represent because polit- even politicians shift from one political party to the other, and that kind of way of politics and not just that but also the corruption the clientelism 
the patrimonialism, mm-hmm. right? The kind of confusion between your own private interests as a person and your political interests, like all that kind of stuff seems to be creeping in to uh, the politics of the most developed societies in the world. And so suddenly you start thinking, well, you know, there does seem to be a similarity of, of between, between the two, between like Brazil and, you know, the global North. But I wanted to, uh, would, I don't want to claim credit for this because it's Paulo Guedes, the, the philosopher who wrote this essay in 2004, who does an amazing job in trying to show why this is a necessary relationship rather than an accidental one or something purely superficial. So it's not like, hey, look, there's growing inequality in the US, but also that's like Brazil because Brazil has lots of inequality or, you know, Brazil, one place has right, violence, right, right. Place, whatever, which is just a kind of pick and choose. And you could pick any other country and do that as well. You could say Mexicanization or you could say Indianization or whatever the hell, right? Um, what makes Brazil particular is that Brazil, firstly, was always modern. So it's not like emerging out of some old feudal system. It's always was a site for resource extraction. It was always economically yeah. tied into global colonialism. And because of that, it does, never really developed the kind of more sophisticated social relations because it's basically a place to go make money, right? It's a good place to extract value from. Um, and that isn't to say that that wasn't the reality in other places, but, you know, sometimes let's say in the East, <laughs> to use a kind of broad term, um, the capitalism built on an existing society, right? Um, and in other parts of Latin America, you had the sim- similar sort of colonial relationship, but then you had these often like bourgeois uh, revolutions, right? Creating these new republics. Right. Brazil didn't have that. So you always have this kind of weird mixture between the old and the new. And Brazil's whole process of development started basically the new, all the new stuff that emerged kept reinforcing the old. So instead of getting rid of the old landed elite, it just reinforced them in power and kept them in power. Um, and so that doesn't look a lot like what you have in Europe or North America. I mean, if you think of France, which is like the archetypal nation, right? You have like the great bourgeois revolution, 1789. Um, you have the development of a republic, the development of capitalism. You know, that's basically the story that we're, we've learned about modern history, right? Um, and Brazil looks a lot different from that. So how can you say that somewhere like France is becoming Brazilianized? Well, it's more that France is kind of meeting Brazil halfway. Like Fran- France, just to take the example, is deteriorating and becoming more like Brazil. Um, it's it's kind of moving into the future into in reverse in a in a, in a weird way, right? Mm. Um, so and it's that form of social decline. And so what what's that what's that essence of this, right? Like what is the one key like nucleus that ties all this Brazilianization together? And it's the end of modernization. And what that specifically means is the idea of formalized labor, basically having a job, having a a kind of relatively stable job um, where you might not necessarily have career advances, you know, as 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 a worker, but you have the ability to kind of enter consumer society and have a, have a, some stake in society and use that leverage of having a job to fight against your employer for better conditions, better wages, right. um, to organize with other people to fight for greater citizenship. A deal yeah. has been made, basically. Yeah, and that's and that's what's coming apart. That's what's coming apart in the West right. where, with increasing casualization of labor, outsourcing, etc. I have one question about that, which is that it seems that in Europe – that at least, like, for example, with the case of, like, the Yellow Vest, right? It seems that, you know, because we're talking about France, uh, in that instance, there was, you know, only, I mean, and the Yellow Vests were not successful. We can probably get into this more as we, when we talk about the book. But it seems that, you know, as the West tries these kind of more 
more of these sort of neoliberal reforms or however we want to call them more kind of um, degrading that kind of like these like labor relations um, into kind of more precarious, uh, precarious situations that, uh, you know, there is, there is still a kind of, you know, historical legacy there that, that will fight back. Um, That's not so much the case in Brazil, however, right? It doesn't, there really isn't that, there anymore, it seems. I mean, you know, the last great mass social democratic party formed in the world was the PT, right? In the kind of in the 1980s. Um, and it was a kind of remarkable thing that that it emerged at this time kind of as, as history was ending, you know, kind of towards the end of um, the whole period, like the right before the Soviet Union collapse and so on. But it was a kind of a new sort of formation made up of like the urban working class, but also um, kind of left-wing Catholics, intellectuals, uh, kind of social movements, including landless and so mm. on. Um, and, you know, th- there was a big move there, but it never really was successful in overturning the old order. So you had redemocratization, but the military dictatorship managed to kind of keep certain elements of continuity, both like the military police that we were talking about, like that's a perfect example, but also the kind of old, right. um, like local elites kind of remained in power as well and were kind of inscribed in the, in, in the constitution. So you get this mixed bag of this new constitution, which promises all sorts of social rights, which were won through struggle. But at the same time, you have the structures the old structures sort of remain in place. And so you get this ambiguity or this sort of indeterminacy all the time in, in like as a sort of pattern in Brazilian history. I mean, that doesn't mean that there's no social struggle, but, you know, Brazil, like everywhere, has seen a decline in in social struggle, in, in trade unions, in, uh, in protests and movements and everything, right? So you do have things emerging and you had, uh, like last year, you had uh, like Uber Eats delivery drivers kind of unionizing and, and striking mm-hmm. and stuff so that, you know, th- that's good. And that, that would be the new form of labor struggle that you would have, which would be something positive and new to emerge. But yeah, I mean, there's not really any serious, uh, serious challenge to it. Ch- serious challenge to kind of the precaritization of, of labor that's been, that's been happening. Yeah. PT's rise, uh, especially during the time that it did as sort of social democratic parties were, were either tacking towards the center or, uh, essentially beginning their disintegrate their long slow yeah. disintegrations as they did in much of western europe has been pretty remarkable i think a lot of people put uh onto pt i mean social democracy does often have a different character outside of i guess what we would call the west um especially in developing countries which i don't know i don't know if you would call brazil a developing country i'm not versed in the uh sort of poli sci talk but that that uh, that's a fair enough yeah, characterization yeah. that's I fine feel yeah like. yeah um, but, uh, but they also seem to have been pretty affected by sort of the flattening of politics in the nineties and two thousands. And, you know, like you said, they have a mass base, but there's almost no mass struggle anymore. So, uh, like we see with a lot of these parties is uh, you see sometimes a base, sometimes a small base, sometimes a, a larger one, like in the case of PT, but there's no like eventual overturning of the system like how social democratic parties originally started and uh, you know at least in words maintained up until like I don't know, the 30s in a lot of cases uh and sometimes longer if they were really fooling themselves uh but w- with PT and a lot of these other parties is like they're not trying to really overthrow the old system they're trying to make these accommodations within it and i think that's where you lead to the contradictions that uh that 
eventually lead to the rise of a guy like Bolsonaro or, you know, getting in and out of government and stuff like this, because there is no like great revolutionary break with the past. And, and without that, I mean, you just sort of have the slow degradation of things. No, totally. I mean, I mean, obviously it's worth saying that European style social democracy would be a radical thing to have in Brazil, right? So let alone talks of socialism or post-capitalism or whatever, like that would still be a radical thing. But what's important to realize, and I think Maybe admirers of PT, like in the US, for example, miss this too often, is that the period of like peak high neoliberalism, globalization, the end of history, etc., was governed by PT in Brazil. And it wasn't a radical break with it. What they did was manage it more effectively and in a slightly more fair way. You know, the rich did very, very, very well under PT and the poor did a little bit better than they used to do. Um, and mm-hmm. so, and in some senses, there was an element of like post-politics, I guess we'll come, we'll, we'll come on to talk about this, but um, the kind of form of managerialism, the form of consensus politics, you know, rather than uh, real conflict, that was what PT did when it was in power, right? It was like, oh, we're, we represent all Brazilians. We're, we're doing this for everyone. Um, the, the kind of uh, like upper middle class right loves to say that, you know, uh, the PT was super divisive and pursued class war and whatever, but it was mainly only rhetorical, if that at all. Um, In practice, there wasn't really much of that. And so you have with the whole pink tide, really, like across Latin America, um, with maybe the exception of like Venezuela and maybe to an extent Bolivia, um, but without getting into that, you know, the the idea was basically to uh, govern neoliberalism in a more fair way. And what ended up happening was that they treated the symptoms of neoliberalism um, while the causes or rather the, the kind of underlying situation actually worsened. And it's worth noting that, um, I mean, I don't know if like listeners will remember this, the scene in the news, but in 2013, there was a huge explosion of protests, millions and millions yeah, of people massive. all across mm-hmm. the streets everywhere. And that was during a PT government. And the PT was not able to adapt to it, not able to incorporate their demands, really. They were kind of caught kind of sitting ducks, basically. And those demands were for initially for like better healthcare, better education. Um, and as I put it in the article, and maybe kind of too highfalutin terms, but a revolt against indeterminacy, a revolt against the sense that this is as good as it gets, and but we'll just tolerate the old political system, which is corrupt, the, the sense that there's no real genuine progression that you know people got lives got better materially but in a very individualized consumerist fashion which was great mm-hmm. because working class families could afford a refrigerator and a tv for the first time in their lives maybe send their kids to university to private university rather than public university in brazil the public universities are free and better than the private universities generally um and but, but you know, it, it was like uh, inclusion through consumption, like as it was called, right? And so there wasn't really any significant transformation of the public sphere. The kind of public sphere kind of continued to deteriorate, even if people kind of got better off. And so there was this revolt against that. Um, and that was a real mass explosion and a potentially revolutionary moment if only things had been different, which is maybe, I don't know if that makes much sense to put it that way. But, you know, if there had been the social organization there, um, the... Um, just at the kind of grassroots level that maybe that could have led right. to something revolutionary. Instead, what you ended up with actually was a really farcical denouement, which you can kind of trace it all the way to Bolsonaro. I'm not going to say that the 2013 protests were responsible for Bolsonaro. By no means is that true. But there's a, a, a sort of change in, or rather put it this way, there was 
a massive delegitimation of the political system at that moment. And Brazil hasn't recovered from that. And Bolsonaro surfed that wave and took advantage of that. The fact that all the old parties were completely delegitimized. And so this guy can come in and say, hey, I'm against corruption. I'm not like that. I'm not like the old elite. I'm going to come in here all guns blazing, maybe literally, and, uh, and clean this place up. Yeah, I mean, I think so. You mentioned the the big word of the day, which is the title of your book, "The End of the End of History." So we should say um, when we when you say the end of history, should we should we just really quickly get out of the way what we're talking about when we say that? Yeah, because <laughs> this is a this is like a very you know uh, contested idea, even or you know, it's like one of those things that people say, but maybe is not totally representative of Fukuyama's actual claims that he was making in the book. Um, so maybe we should kind of like lay out what we're talking about here. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously at the end of history, Fukuyama's idea of it was that there would be no real challenge to the prevailing order of liberal democracy. Liberal democracy would be the final form of human government, as he put it, right? And so that was that was the kind of be all and end all. And that doesn't mean that there would be no more events, right? That like history history shouldn't be understood as just events like stuff happening like there would still be coups and uprisings and various different things happening around the world but that there would be no systemic alternative there wasn't the soviet union however decrepit it was by the end going yeah but there's still the possibility of socialism there's at least an alternative Mm. if not necessarily a superior alternative at least there was something else there um and that was just taken as read And, and as the soviet union disappeared from the face of the earth you didn't really anymore have a sense that things could really be fundamentally different. So it was either liberal democracy or, uh, I don't know, maybe what you've got in North Korea or Syria or Iraq. And so these places are, are places which are, you know, obviously terrible and either will have to become liberal democracies slowly or they'll have to be bombed into it or maybe just forgotten and thrown onto the dustbin of history. But basically everyone's going to become a liberal democracy. And and if you're not doing that, what the fuck else are you doing, right? And even the left within in the... West didn't really believe that anything could change. You know, you have the anti-globalization movement, which is a mixed bag, but the protests were mainly, I think, kind of carnivalesque expressions, um, which didn't really cohere in any significant way, didn't really challenge power in any significant way. And so that's the end of history. It's it's a deadening uh, kind of situation politically where there isn't really any belief that anything could genuinely change. And there's no real big idea about what you know what what a kind of different world could look like um i mean that's a world that i grew up in i think that's a world that you guys grew up in and you kind of remember yeah, absolutely remember just there being nothing going on and you know there's there's moments where you get excited there's a big anti-war anti-iraq war protest you know you might get excited about that mm. um but it doesn't seem to lead anywhere and if anything anytime that there's an explosion of kind of left-wing energy or alternative energy it just seems to be completely absorbed and recuperated by uh, by the powers that be, by the establishment, by capitalism, whatever, you, however you want to put it. I mean, no, I, I, absolutely with that. Like my whole life, I've kind of grown up, um, you know, with, there's no alternative, right? I, I was born in 1989, uh, which was the beginning of the worst three-year period in human history um, when, uh, when, when the East fell. And, uh, and so my whole life, I've basically grown up not really having a, um, you know, not to sound like uh, some guy who's submitting an essay to the gray zone or whatever, but like there's no multipolarity there, right? Like there's like you got you got American sort of liberal democracy style capitalism on one hand, and then you got uh, uh, you know whatever you want to call it, but you know 
capitalist. Uh, well, no, there's a let's say liberal democracy in China too, because or new democracy rather, because they have those small like eight constituent parties, or not constituent rather, but there's eight other parties in the Chinese. Uh, uh, no, but but even, but even then, people thought that China would become liberal too. You know, China would become yeah, liberal yeah, democracy yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, you know, okay, there was there was Tiananmen Square, but you know they'll get there eventually, right? Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like even then, like there's no real like system alternative. There's only sort of gradations or variations. Uh and, and I think that has like a a probably quantifiable, but as far as I can tell, un- unquantified so far psychological effect on people. That leads to even if you profess to believe in, you know, revolutionary politics or even like social democratic or democratic socialist or whatever politics, you don't really believe anything's gonna happen. I mean, I've talked to a lot of like, you know, people who would call themselves revolutionaries in my lifetime. And like you can't get too serious about it because you don't actually believe it's going to happen because there's no, like there's nothing for you internationally to sort of like, uh, hang on to. Right. I mean, there's these sort of small islands, uh, you know, in the, in the, the, just sea of capital, you know, Cuba and kind of stuff like that. But like, you know, there's no sort of revolutionary alternative or even like system alternative, really. I mean, the, now it's like, you see a lot of, uh, a lot of people on the left just point to England as as the way things should be better. you know like look they have they have all these sort of programs in england man of, I, I, you know, I, li- I used to live in like... utopian and, and then i moved to brazil that, that was a bad move maybe if only you knew yeah shit exactly yeah 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 but but you know i mean even that and and so i think people's politics no matter what they sort of gussy them up as I think are a big reflection of that myself included is that like you know your politics are no matter what you've read or profess to believe, they're also reflective of the world you grew up in and the world that you live in. And that's the world that we live in. And so we do get to, I think what you, you know, one of the terms you use in here in the book is called anti-politics, uh, which, which I'll ask you to elaborate mm-hmm. on because while I have several uh, pages of notes on it, I use the R word judiciously uh, uh, throughout. And, <laughs> and I assume that you will not. I mean, I can if you want to. Does that will that make it spicier? Maybe I should try to find a way to incorporate <laughs> that into the um, right. So yeah, you know, as you say, like you're growing up, and it's kind of boring the scene. You know, there isn't really anything seems to be moving, and you want. And if you're interested in politics, if you happen to be one of these weirdos who was interested in politics instead of just pursuing their life like a normal person, uh, you know, you're just waiting for something to come along, and nothing really happens. Um, and then suddenly there's a global financial crisis. And even after that, nothing really changes. And it's weird. Mm-hmm. Why hasn't nothing changed? Suddenly, I, was, I remember being excited and thinking, yeah, we have to re- return to political economy because I'm a nerd and that's the way I thought. But the, you know, re- return to kind of thinking about the deep structures of the way that the world is organized and mm-hmm. not just be talking about whether it's going to be, you know, I mean, I was in the UK, like whether, you know, Gordon Brown is going to take over from Tony Blair and like how Gordon Brown is more like left wing than Tony Blair. And you're like, no, they're not. It's just yeah. the guy, one guy wears a red, red tie and the other one wears a blue one. Who cares? Right. Um, but then suddenly around 2011, things started to change. You had, first of all, just the notion of revolution, that revolution could exist again um, through the Arab Spring. And okay, that was over there, right? I mean, like apologies to, uh, co- listeners in Arab countries, um, for for you, it's there, right here. But you know, for for those of us in Europe at the time, it was over there. But even so, you know, suddenly masses on the street challenging a regime, and that was amazing. 
But all they said was, we want the downfall of the regime, which is good, but it's not really saying what you want. And I'm not one of these same person who comes along and goes, well, wait, you know, I want your detailed plan for, for government. Otherwise, you know, you're, you know, you don't have any legitimacy, but you have to kind of advance some sort of idea. And so here I'm getting to the anti-politics thing, right? That there's a denunciation of the establishment of the way that things run um, and which tries to polarize things and tries to make things contested again uh, and not fold things into the consensus politics that you had in the 90s and 2000s, which is what I call post-politics. It's the, it's the, well, not just me, but I mean, uh, it's called post-politics in the sense that it's a foreclosure of political contestation, right? So it's the idea that mm. everything is wrapped up in consensus, uh, rhetorically, as well as in reality, and decision, the responsibility for serious decisions about how the economy runs, for example, how you know, who gets what, basically, which is the, the real essence of politics, is relegated to maybe the central bank or to quangos or to uh, supranational organizations like the EU or whatever. And so politics is taken out of people's hands. And as a consequence, no one goes to vote anymore, right? You could de get declining voter participation, uh, declining membership of political parties, uh, declining membership of civic associations, of trade unions, all the rest of it, right? Politics just becomes completely empty. The space between citizens and the state is massive. You get parties which belong to the state all the way up there, uh, colluding almost amongst themselves, and then you get the people who are mainly disinterested, apathetic. But what changes, and, and here we kind of draw a strict line around like 2016, that the end of the end of, the, sorry, excuse me, the end of history ends because you have a shift from apathy to anger. That's a really simplified and reductive way to understand it, but I think it's true. So you should listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> no, but I think it's true because well, suddenly you get anger back, right? And anger becomes allowed as a political emotion, whereas before you weren't allowed to be angry. If you were angry, you were a malcontent, probably racist, maybe sexist, right? You should be excluded from, from public political discussion. But suddenly anger is back and, and it comes out in weird form. So, you know, Trump does it. Trump kind of strolls in and goes... You all are corrupt. Yeah, I'm corrupt too, but I'm the guy who's gonna who's gonna clean things up because I'm calling things as they are, right? I'm saying that the emperor has no clothes, and none of you dare to say it. And that was pretty exciting. Like it's kind of pretty thrilling uh, to to hear that, especially if you've lived your life, um, you know, disgruntled with your situation, um, feeling that your wages are stagnating, and maybe you don't think of things in such economic terms, but maybe you think of things at least in terms of the politicians that you elect who you think are all liars. And this guy comes along and say, yeah, these guys are all liars. And not just them, but the media too. And that's a sort of template which Trump uh, follows from, I mean, you know, Berlusconi, maybe we can come on to Italy in a, in a little bit, but, um, mm, it, it, but it's, a, it's a sort of a populist template um, that is shared across the board and suddenly it becomes a new template of politics. And so when I say anti-politics, I see populism as one variant of anti-politics. And so to maybe to come to a definition of anti-politics, since you've asked me for, for a definition, I'm going to try to remember what I wrote in the book here, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll fumble my lines, but we'll, we'll, we'll go for it, um, is that it is a rejection of the political establishment, but at the cost of rejecting representation as such, and therefore putting into question political authority. So what does that actually mean? It means that in its rejection of the whole political class, what it does, but in failing to advance a new idea or to take power for yourself, what you're basically saying is that any representative is corrupt, unworthy, um, a liar, etc. 
right? And which sounds like a great denunciation and very radical thing, right? To say that like they don't represent us, right? Cool. But who do you want to represent you? Or do you want mm. to take charge directly? Do you want direct democracy? Do you want to literally rule yourself? No, actually, there isn't any idea advanced in whether it's the the yellow vest, which uh, Liz already mentioned, or whether it's kind of the Trumpists, or um, even the kind of movement of the squares in in Spain, for example, there isn't really the coming together behind a new idea of how the world should work, about how politics should work. So it's you're kind of just stuck in denunciation and rejection of the the political class, the political establishment, and in that sense, it ends up being kind of cynical. You know, it ends up kind of going, well, yeah, we don't believe it's good that now, unlike in the end of history period, so let's say from 1989 to 2006, people weren't really interested in politics because politics wasn't interested in them, right? They, things weren't, important decisions were taken out completely out of their hands. You know, their vote just basically didn't matter, didn't change anything. So then either people didn't care or maybe believed in the kind of political marketing that they were sold by politicians. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. so maybe 50% of the people do and 50% of the people just don't turn out to vote at all, whatever. Suddenly you have a complete delegitimation of the system. People don't believe anymore and really put into question the way things are run, which is great, right? And it's exciting because it means that that opens all sorts of opportunities to pursue new political projects, whether you're on the right, the kind of populist right or the left or wherever, right? Um, the, the thing starts falling apart. And the thing falling apart means that there's a glimmer of light, which is cool and exciting, and you can do things with that. But unfortunately, thus far, all we've had are kind of anti-political movements. And anti-politics has now become the dominant form of politics because what you've got is even mainstream politicians have been able to adapt to this and they've been clever and they've been going, okay, well, you know, you, there's all these populists are challenging us. Maybe we should be a little bit populist too. And so even the kind of driest kind of technocratic neoliberal types who think, you know, well, we just need to put uh, decisions in charge of the experts and follow the best scientific advice. And we don't need to care about what people think because the people are messy or stupid or unruly or whatever. And uh, even they start playing populist. I mean, you could even go roll back further and say, you know, even someone like Tony Blair, who's like your typical kind of neoliberal politician, he's kind of a, he does this populist thing as well. Or Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, total. I mean, I was going to say like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about Trump. (laughs) It sounds so stupid. (laughs) I've been thinking about this Trump guy. I'm, I'm slow to the game. Um, No, but I've been thinking a little bit about Trump and when I was reading your book and I'm wondering what you think i mean i suppose the the big glaring thing that differentiates him is that he won and he was president so okay but it does seem like i mean what makes him so different or unique from say uh like ron paul or a um ross perot or like you say these affectations that uh bill clinton adopts or tony blair or you know that there's these sort of moments or i mean even reagan obviously that you know mm. it's a famous comparison um, at least kind of effectively. But I think what's like sort of interesting then is that, cause I don't know, I mean, just to like maybe have a little fun here and push back on some things. Like, I don't know if I buy the end of history. Like I still am like one of those like holdouts of the like Fukuyama thesis, which is that like, or I guess what, what which is to say that, I, I mean, I do think this concept of anti-politics, I think is very, um, is very explanatory. Like I, I do really, I, I think it's great. You have some stuff in here. I think 
I have a quote from you here that there's this dual movement, the anti-political attack on the bureaucracy and the hollowness of the neoliberal party says the masses matter. Simultaneously, it pulls the masses away again, fobbing them off with restrictive individualized form of participation. And I do, I think that's true. I like the little nod to the dual movement. Um, but I think that almost kind of thinking of this era and thinking of Trump and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to set aside Bolsonaro because I'm just going to move away from that for a second because I do think that that's kind of a unique and different situation. Mm. Um, but it's almost like something broke free that had already been simmering there for a, for a very long time. That was sort of political. That like this populism that you described is a sort of affect that's always kind of um, like a current that's bubbling yeah. in kind of Western politics. That it's almost required well, it, in a it, way. No, absolutely. Yeah, no. It's populism is something that emerges or was invented in 2016 or whatever, right? Um, right, you can trace right, all the right. Way back. As, for everyone to talk about, yeah. at university seminars. No, exactly, exactly. Oh my god, populism's <laughs> emerged. Shit, we need to like clamp this down because um, yeah, you know, get Chantal Mouffe on the line. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, actually, yeah, you, populism is nothing but kind of technocracy's shadow. So everywhere that technocracy mm. goes, that politics is kind of hollowed out and shunted on to experts to take responsibility, you get populism because it's it's uh, it's the kind of it's a necessary form that reaction to it takes. That it's going no, right. we 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 matter. Pop, that we're going to talk for the people, right? Because before you wouldn't talk for the people. Mm. It's about experts, or maybe at the most you might say this is for everyone, right? A consensus where we're ruling for we rule for all Americans or for all British people or all hardworking families or whatever the hell you want to say, right? Even there, actually, kind of the hardworking families thing is itself maybe a bit of a populist construction. But anyway, I guess that that kind of proves my point that you can't just yeah. be, or there's very few entirely dry managerial technocrats. They always have to adopt a little bit of the populist language. Otherwise, they wouldn't mm. win, right? No one wants it. Because pure outright elitism is not possible in our contemporary society. And that's a good thing, by the way. But I mean, you know, you can't just be an outright elitist. So you need to be a bit of a populist. Um, but I think what, what happens is that, one, populism doesn't win explicitly because it has lots of moments, but is never really able to change the order in any significant way. Mm. Um, rather, the order adapts to populism and incorporates it. So what you get now, I mean, this is a term used by uh, Christopher Bickerton, techno-populism, right, which is a fusion of the two. And if you want to roll back a bit, you know, Berlusconi, and the reason Berlusconi is so important to understanding the end of history and why he's an avatar, he and Italy probably are an avatar of the end of history, is because he's the guy who does techno-populism before anybody else. So he's the yeah. successful businessman who is going to bring in efficiency and dynamism, which he knows from the private sector because he's a successful um, you know, TV, media, uh, advertising guy, right? Owns a football Handsome club. fella too. Handsome fella too, successful guy. with the ladies. So, you know. Your namesake, your podcast namesake, well, like, by the way. Yeah, well, so, you know, so he's he's this he's he's this uh, efficient kind of technocratic manager who's not interested in the old left versus right kind of stuff. He's not interested in mm -hmm. the old uh, ideas of tradition, for example, nor is he interested in solidarity, certainly not. You know, he's just a guy who's saying, hey, you you go out and do your own thing, make, you know, make your life for yourself. Just like me, you can become like me. I'm the successful guy with my white shirt unbuttoned to uh, to the belly button, 
getting all the chicks and uh and you know great right i'm an ordinary guy but i'm naked newscaster yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm an ordinary guy but i'm also really special and that's the a, a play that he's always it's something mm. that he's always played with and other people have uh, adopted that i mean gaddafi did that well gaddafi did it well a, a friend of of berlusconi's of, <laughs> of course and and trump you know trump is just a, yeah. a, a pale imitation sure. of berlusconi so you know he he does that, but he so but at the same time he's also this populist guy. I mean, along the lines of what I've just been saying, personalizes politics, says this is all about me and my image, um, plays to the crowd uh, of saying, "Hey, you ordinary Italians, you're just like me. Forget all the forget all the eggheads and the like intellectuals and whatever. Screw what they're saying. I'm t- I'm letting you be who you want to be. You know, don't worry about civic duties. Don't worry about being a better person. Just be your you know just be be yourself. Go after what you want." And so that's techno-populism right there, and he's the essence of it, and he does it earlier and better than anybody else, and everyone else is just an imitator. I, I think something you mentioned in the book uh, sort of stuck with me too, and it's it's always been kind of something that the left has has struggled to grapple with with these with these populist politicians in that people will point out like well you know he says he's a populist but he's not going after the economic <laughs> elites or like he says he's a populist but like you know he's corrupt and i think people people sort of have this tendency to believe that a populist must actually be for the people in the same way that like a communist yeah. would be for the people when, when, when in actuality, I think what, what the populists like, like Berlusconi or like what Trump represents is sort of like the, the, the slobbish, uh, garrulous nature of the people in that they might not, they don't represent the people. I mean, they aren't in many cases, uh, advancing the interests of the working classes or whatever, certainly not as such. Uh, I mean, obviously in some instances they, they, they do or whatever, but like, that's not the political project rather. Um, and, and the corruption falls into that too. And, and it's funny, this sort of like corruption, anti-corruption dialectic that plays out within the populism yeah. is that like people like Trump, people, you know, a lot of his critics were, were saying, oh, well, you know, he's so corrupt. Like, how could anybody trust him? And, you know, there was that old thing that everyone said, like, well, yeah, you know, he's, he's a crook, but he's like an honest crook or whatever. But I think that's like people, you know, like you point out in the book is that like people don't really care if, if he's a crook in the way that he's crook. I mean, the tax thing. Uh, you know, when when the New York Times and and Hillary Clinton were trying to go and going after him for his taxes, was probably the least effective mode of attack possible. Yeah, because that's the way that everybody cheats. And 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 you know, you point out that like, well, people might want a uh, you know less obviously corrupt economic system, or at least they want some of the more overt bad actors punished. Uh, not to change really necessarily anything else. Um, but they don't want. Yeah, they maybe don't want the tax collector to be as you know super careful with them or anything like that. You know that that's going a little too far, and I think that sort of um, that connection that they that 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 working and sort of middle class people make with with the populist politicians is really important, and I think that's something that the left fails to grapple with. I I have never fell for the populist bullshit that a lot of people. I hate populists because first of all, they're annoying. Second of all, most people are fucking morons who don't know what they want. They got fucking false consciousness. So why got why do I got to listen to all these assholes? Um, but, uh, but Berlusconi, I mean, he is, he is such a prototypical, uh, kind of guy. And I think we're going to see a lot more of him. 
a lot more version to him. I think Hopefully the thing you bring up too. about the the kind of like, you know, speaking for the people of the people or whatever, the like populist affectation, I think that's so important because I think what people mistake is like, well, no, he is speaking for a segment of yeah. the people or like, that's why I found, you know, I really liked in the book when you bring up the case of Amarsh and Macron, the kind of like... um kind of incredible, uh, a, a certain sect of the kind of upper middle class populist, I guess I would yeah. say, um, and who's done, you know, a phenomenal job at kind of coalescing, I would say, the kind of liberal and reactionary and liberal reactionary <laughs> segments of the middle and upper class of France and, of course, of the Eurozone itself. Um because that's been a really interesting case watching him. And it's funny, too, like, you see people almost, I mean, and I'm including, like, liberals and progressives that fall that are fans of Macron for whatever fucking reason uh, in this case as well. But, like, you almost see people wanting him to go full Sun King. <laughs> like, they, yeah. you, you, you yeah. see this desire where they're like, oh, it's almost an ironic, it's like half ironic, half not, would be like, oh, my God, Macron is totally going to, like, oh, France will rise again and he's going to be this, like, you know, he's going to go de Gaulle. He's going to be a nationalist, when, which is totally misunderstanding the relationship between him and the EU, obviously. But also then is betraying a kind of interesting mm, antagonism, right, within this kind of, I would argue, middle-class politics that kind of dominates what we call the political. Yeah. No, I mean, totally. And I think that desire for someone to take charge is a genuine desire because the elite has no authority. And when I say mm-hmm. that, you know, it means it doesn't mean that they have no power because they have a huge amount of power, but they're not in charge, right? They're not controlling things. They're as short termist as the as a kind of day trader, right? I mean, it's they're just responding to things, responding to media, and as a consequence, mm-hmm. they're they don't really determine outcomes. You know, they're not the grand political figure. We build them up because we hate them and we and we criticize them. But in, in some right. sense, we're complicit in building them up by Absolutely. by criticizing them. Really, I mean, really, the emperor has no clothes, which is again why I admire Trump in that kind of just that little way because of because of that. Um, and yeah, he like lets you in on the joke, yeah. and he knows he's letting you in on the joke, exactly. and you know he's letting you in on the joke, and so there's like a little wink nod nod there. Exactly, and especially because, and to refer a little bit back to what Race was saying a bit earlier, is that you know this populism stuff works not on an economic level because it's not really about economics, and partly in part because the economy isn't hasn't been politicized, and there isn't you know someone yeah. saying, hey, what about mm-hmm. socialism instead, right? So it works on a political level, and by political, I just don't I don't mean just like Congress and parties and elections and all that stuff, but about the very question of authority, right? Who's in charge and who gets to choose um, how things are ordered? And people are sick of the kind of hollow authority of politicians, of neoliberal politicians, who say, you know, basically, no, this can't be done, right? So any kind of demand that's made is like, no, we can't because we've got to follow the rules. No, we can't because, you know, the EU says we can't or because uh, globalization says we can't or whatever, right? And, and people kind of go, but you're meant to be in charge and you, and you promise these things and then you say you can't do things. And this is part of the reason why immigration is such a fraught debate. And without getting into the details of it, I think it acts as a sort of metaphor for like politicians say, you know, well, we're going to maybe limit immigration and then they don't. Right. And they say, no, we can't. And this is especially in the EU. And they say, no, we can't because we have treaties signed and whatever. And mm. for a lot of people, 
immigration acts as a cipher for lack of popular control of politics. And it's like, wait, if you can't even control the borders, what do you control? You guys are just a bunch right. of liars, right? right? And so I'm in favor of a liberal immigration policy, but that doesn't. But I recognize that immigration becomes this hugely important fraught thing because it is a it's like a symbol of of loss of control, right? Um, and that's the reality of um, well of the end of history. The difference, I guess, to to return to the theme about the end of the end of history is that people start saying something about it, right? That people start challenging that sense of drift, that sense that things aren't in control, and actually demanding that someone take charge, right? Again. It only takes the form of anti-politics. So right. the demand and, and Macron is an example of anti-politics in some way as well, despite him being the kind mm. of liberal golden boy, supposedly. Um is a demand that that um yeah, that that he takes charge and acts in the interests of the people and beyond left and right and stuff like that. Um so you get this weird fusion of different of different sort of themes. What what said I mean, what do you think this form would look like that isn't anti-political? I guess. I guess maybe that's a big question. Yeah, and and and, and it'd be easy just to be like socialism. Like it's into a question about classes, I think. Yeah, you know? no, I mean, it would be easy to be like socialism, but I think the important, I think maybe that might be the wrong way to think about it maybe. And so I'm, I'm right. going to retract that answer because I think the, the, the thing is one about, again, to return to the theme of authority, of authority, um, is that we need to say that we want to take charge. We want to rule ourselves, right? And not necess- not just be about getting things done for us by the state, by one wing of the state or the other or whatever, um, but about no longer kind of remaining in this position of denunciating the elite, building them up as if they're gods who don't give us what uh, you know what is our due and like railing against the gods, shouting at heaven, but instead being, being able to say, no, we want to rule ourselves, right? We want, we want greater democracy and a greater say. Now that's really vague. Um, so maybe that doesn't entirely answer your question, but at least it's not um, just a purely negative reaction against the elite saying they don't represent us. That we have to be willing to say, no, we want representative. We want to represent ourselves. We want to, we want to actually rule. I think what's, you know, I, I, I'm just like thinking out, like thinking out loud as we're talking about this, but you know, it's interesting to bring this back to the beginning when you were saying about this crisis in Brazil with PT in 2013 and the protests and how it didn't go anywhere. But it had there was a shot, right? It yeah. felt like there was this window that was missed. And I think what's interesting is that, like, you say we. What I would push back on is, it, and you know, for all of us to think about, it's like, what is who is the we? Right? Like when we speak for we, who are we talking about? When we say the elites, who are we talking about? Right? And like. In the case of PT, it was that there was this kind of managed, this managed sort of like liberal, like you say, end of history technocracy, this sort of a management style of governance Mm -hmm. that was decaying in a lot of ways, decaying away. Um, And it felt like there was from below a challenge to that kind of uh, managed middle class rule and that I would say that if there is a shot to get out of anti-politics, a, a shot to kind of illuminate, you know, you talk about dissensus a lot in the book, to illuminate a kind of moment of dissensus, to kind of to kind of have a break, that it's going to be against the political classes or the the political, the, the kind of politics that emerges out of the classes that really manage the kind of 
dynamics between this sort of populist reaction to anti-populist to post-populist or post-politics, excuse me, that that are um, kind of all, uh, you know, as you read in the book, since the end of history, this sort of like dynamic system in and of itself, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, because if I get you correctly, that there's, what we have is a real lack of belief in any sort of intermediaries. And that's why people aren't also members of political mm. parties, for example, because you don't trust them. And so what you end up with thing, are things like, to take an example that we discussed in the book, uh, the Five Star Movement in Italy, right? Which is just pure, it's most pure populist. If you want to know an example of, of populist anti-politics, the Five Star is it, right? And it starts yeah. by with a kind of... Uh, with this V-Day, which is a uh, fafanculo, like go fuck yourself day, um, which just says fuck you to the politicians, which like it seems really adolescent, you know, and, and that's kind of what it is. Um, and it, it forms into this digital party where your members are able to vote on stuff, but you don't really have, uh, you know, party chapters and you don't have cadres formed mm-hmm. and you don't have like all the kind of intermediary forms of organization because people don't believe in that anymore. And so what you end up with is this kind of this demagogic sort of politics where you've got this leader who is like this super hyper leader up there who you put all your faith and belief into, which is kind of ironic because we're not meant to believe in politicians anymore. And yet we might only put our belief temporarily in these populist leaders um, and there's nothing in between, right? And so you don't owe your allegiance to the party you're, and you don't have any real commitment to it. And there's not really any cost of opting out or to, to, to come out of things, which is why politics has a sort of pop-up feel to it where people, you can join a crowd, you can maybe join this political party, but you don't really have to pay dues perhaps, you know, so there's no financial commitment, which actually means that you're genuinely committed to something and it means something and there's uh, you know, a long-term binding element to it, not forever, but that it means that you've actually, you know, put your money where your mouth is, right? Um, and that's kind of what politics has become. So because you can opt out so easily, your joining doesn't really mean that much. And that's what you have with these populist leaders. And you have it to a certain, you had it to a certain extent with Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, where there wasn't really much belief in the party. It's certainly not in the US, right? It's just this guy, this kind of nice granddad figure who's who's like part of the system, but suddenly we think that it isn't part of the system or, you know, maybe it's just the best of a bad bunch. And we put all our hopes in it. And I kind of see this now even with people still kind of worshiping Bernie Sanders. And, you know, I, w- I was a fan of his. I think, he, you know, I, I liked some of his speeches and I thought he was better than the, 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 the alternatives. But, you know, to still be banging on about Bernie is a little bit sad. It's a little bit cringe because you're not talking about the our party. You're talking about this old dude, you know, who's like been a senator for ages. Um, and that is, I think, in, in you know, a weird way, a reflection of anti-politics in its own way. And that maybe that doesn't make sense because anti-politics is meant to be all about how you don't believe in politicians anymore and you denounce them. But in that vacuum that emerges um, where you don't, you're not a member of a political party, you don't believe in any institutions anymore, it actually opens the space up for individual charismatic politicians because that's the only connection that you have to politics through the individual politician's charismatic Mm -hmm. figure and you know that can be an obviously non-charismatic figure like bernie like uh, jeremy corbyn or a more charismatic figure like bernie sanders who seems to be at least someone who's up for a fight um but again it doesn't really take us out of the hole because all that you can have ensuing from that is to vote for this one guy through an electoral moment and hope that you have the same sort of populist breakthrough that right-wing populists have. But you're stuck in a loop there because it's so ephemeral. 
It's so ephemeral that maybe you have this breakthrough, but you know, what happens when they get into power? How are they going to be held honest to their promises and so on? You know, it's, it's, you're still stuck in this completely ephemeral politics where there's a void. There's a void between political institutions and the people. Well, we saw that too with 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 Bernie's sort of half-ass setting up of our, our revolution uh, in between his political campaigns, and it was just really yeah. had no. There, there was a certain amount of just like you know, hand waving, shoulder shrugging around it because it it didn't mean anything. It was basically an empty sort of institution, a way for like. It was just, it was like a Bernie Sanders pack, but didn't even really function that. Yeah, well. and, and I mean, and what with, did Corbyn do now recently? Right, he's completely out. He set up an NGO. Please, the, the last yeah. thing we need is another fucking NGO. Like that, you know, um, that's just jobs for people. Like, that's just a job for people like me or whatever. Right, like I don't don't need that. Right. Granted, I mean, in, in Corbyn's defense, it does directly just give money to Hamas to buy weapons. <laughs> um, but but I, yeah, point taken. And it, the thing is, is like. I, I can't tell. I mean, I, I try to like study the way politics are done in, in a lot of third world countries. Um, I, I would Philippines, um, you know, parts of South Asia, especially. And it, the difference I think is, um, well, there's actually many differences, but one of them is that these countries do like uh, tend to have much larger mass organizations. I mean, in in India, especially, look at you. You have these not even just mass left wing organizations, but you have mass like far right wing organizations as well. You know, far right religious groups and far right essentially militias, even with branches overseas, even branches backing certain Democratic presidential candidates. Uh, who are very pro-Israel, but for some reason we're painted as anti-imperialist. Uh, but I, I, you know, it, it's it's tough to grapple with because a lot of this does seem to be like, I mean, the West and the developed nations, the first world, is filled with sick pigs, and like, and I think a lot of our political culture is is, I mean, it both reflects that and is a reflection of that. Um, and, and, and to me, it's like, I, I feel like we're still sort of stuck in that, that waiting period that we were where it's like, well, I'm still waiting for this big break to happen. And the contours of politics have changed, you know, quite a lot with the advent of the internet, or at least rather the, the, um, you know, the internet invading everybody's lives. Uh, and, and you know, your the tenor of politics certainly changing strike strikingly in 2016, um, but it still seems like we're stuck in a loop. I mean, the loop is getting either faster or bigger. I can't tell. I can tell the loop is changing, but I can't tell if it's going to do one of those hot wheels, like <laughs> loop de loop. And then it goes off the, the car goes off the end of the slide. Maybe we got a couple more rounds in it. You know exactly. what I mean? And, and like, and I've said this on the show before and, uh, and I, 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 to be clear, I don't mean it ironically. Like I think things have to get a lot worse economically uh and uh, you know by extension politically in order for any sort of new horizon to develop i think we have to sort of run out of uh run out of cliff in order to <laughs> jump off of it you um, mentioned ngos i'll say that like i mean the ngos are in this way are a party formation right that's where ngos in like the west are the kind of um what you would call like intermediary spaces where sort of political and cultural ideas get contested um, 
not to sound like too Grimshin or whatever, but like it is like it's funny. The NGO complex, so many people are talking about NGOs right now. I just noticed that this has like become like a hot thing. Um, but it is, you know, it is a really interesting phenomenon. I think that like that complex is uh, vast and I think very um, key to the way that politics um, works and gets negotiated in the United States and and, and much more complicated than than any kind of, I don't know if we're going to have like an NGO exit or something, you know what I mean? Um, there's a real kind of uh, like a middle-class pipeline there that needs some examination, I yeah. think. One thing I'll say about Bernie too is one, stop giving out my damn email. I cannot I've sub- actually, unsubscribe from the sheer amount of political lists that that man has put me on. My God. It's you and you and young Chomsky always complain about this. He didn't put me on any email list. Yeah, you're on a different list, baby. I know, but I get no emails from like Diane Morales or dude. Whatever. I get like crazy. Me. Like it's like some dude, some like con- I don't know. I get like I'm you know running for treasurer in Hawaii, and it's like Bernie. Wh- how am I? Why am I on this list? How am I here? No, I will not give you money. Um, but I do think that what's interesting about the Bernie phenomenon, I've been thinking about this too, is like, you know, I think 2016 is a little different or than, twi- than uh, 2020. Sorry, I'm yeah. like forgetting what year we're in. Jesus Christ. Talk about the end of history. Um, but it almost did like betray a weird belief or, uh, you know, about the 2020 election. Like it did betray this like weird belief in the, Democratic Party, at least here in the United States, right? Because there was this idea like, well, Bernie lost, but oh, you know, he's going to be there. We're going to push Biden left. We're going to do these Mm. things. We're going to have all these. We're creating all these activists network, aka NGOs. We're creating all these, you know, podcasts and media empires and whatever, you know, whatever. Um, And this is going to change all these things, et cetera, et cetera, within the framework of the Democratic Party. Right. And so there was this sort of bizarre, I mean, it is a kind of like, you know, it's not quite, I don't want to say that it's dialectical, but what I mean is that like, there's a kind of bizarre inverse anti-political relationship there. Um, yeah. That I think is worth investigating. No, absolutely. It all leads back. I mean, you know, I think that we can look back at several missed opportunities and, you know, 2016 was one of them and not just in the US, but where there's a real populist moment, which Bernie was able to mm. seize and give it much better form than Trump was able to, you know, I mean, much more progressive, like genuinely progressive, not like US progressive, um, mm. you know, actual form. Um, and by the time 2020 comes around, that has been lost because he's been already much more absorbed into the usual Democrat way of doing things um, and played in, I think, to the anti-Trump thing, which means that you need a safe pair of hands and whatever. Not, not, maybe not to recap that argument because I probably mm. – um, you guys have probably, I'm sure, discussed this and whatever. But um, I think you can see the same thing even in the UK where most left-wing people uh, were like – given up on the Labour Party, right? And then Jeremy Corbyn comes around and thinks and shows that maybe you can transform this party. And there, unlike in the US, you know, it's a membership organization. You had a huge increase in membership. That seemed exciting. Suddenly the masses are back in politics. Cool, great thing, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's an advance. Now that it's been kicked out, now that, you know, Corbynism has been completely defeated, there's still people talking about the Labour Party on the left as if that's the, you know, that's your political north, as if like that's the thing to, and it's like, it, you, you were meant to have given up and okay, cool. I think the Corbyn thing maybe was worth trying, but you know he completely screwed it with backing a second referendum. Um, 
saw that defeat in the polls in Moron. 2019 and turned his back on the people and and you know and 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 uh, you know faced the consequences for that and now the labor party is an increasingly middle class educated party um, of the metropolis metropolises yeah. uh, and metropolis yeah thank you uh, <laughs> and uh, core and has no future i mean it's 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 facing the same process of degeneration of social democratic parties that the french socialist party the dutch socialist party uh, the the greeks etc 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 have all gone through um, and that would be the saddest thing about the kind of left populist moment is if is if all it did was lead the left back to these old decrepit organizations that it was maybe close to breaking with before. Well, I mean, look at look at you know the great betrayal in Greece of Syriza yeah. not leaving the European Union. You know, I mean that 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 we I feel like we've seen ever since that happened. Just variations of that decision, yeah. one way or the other, where these 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 uh, you know left wingers they get up to this precipice and then they look down and they're like, oh my bad, like <laughs> I'm gonna but, and that walk and that's away the failure, in fact surrender and that right there. That's a perfect example. I'm glad you said that because that's the perfect example of what I was talking about before in maybe two abstract terms, so I couldn't give a really concrete form, but about the lack of political authority. Right, that is exactly the moment that you need leadership, where you can't just do this populist yeah. thing like, yeah. oh, what are the people? One. Well, actually, you can because the people said out. The people voted right, no right, against right. the memorandum. Clearly. Now, now, that just means reject the memorandum. And then, you know, kind of the series of leadership says, yes, but that doesn't actually mean leave the EU. No, there's a clear confrontation there. If you're voting mm-hmm. against a memorandum, that means you will have to leave the euro and leave the EU probably. You need to force that confrontation. And what is your job as a politician, as a leader? It is to show people and explain to people what the consequences of this will be yes it will mean immediate hardship and it will be difficult but we will lead our we will lead the people out of this and to the possibility of at least building our own future and being responsible for the way our society looks because the opposite the alternative is to go back and being completely dependent and having other people determine affairs for us and that's the moment that you need to seize political authority and not remain as this kind of leftist denunciating those in power going oh yeah but the eu were too powerful for us and we couldn't do anything and we were we were all lost they're too powerful no this is the moment where you have to seize power and that was a complete treason and you're right i think that is the the key moment it's hard then to also then get mad at the people for rejecting them yeah right absolutely i i just think yeah i don't know that 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 entire saga is very heartbreaking yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the problem. I mean, if you get down to it, you know, you got all these fancy words you know, to talk about politics. The real thing is, a lot of people are just fucking pussies. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, the B-man was in charge of Greece right then. I'd say, bye-bye, you know, have fun. Oh, you can't go to Mykonos anymore then, you fucking Germans. No disrespect. Uh, well, you're not, not German. German. Uh, disrespect to the Germans. I'll be real with you. Just let's be disrespectful disrespect to the to Germans. The Germans. Yeah. Yeah, they deserve yeah. some disrespect. They deserve. Some, I mean, I'll tell you what. They got. They're still you want to talk having about a middle class populism. By the way, let's talk about the Greens in Germany. Uh, I mean, we are a pedophile podcast, <laughs> so that's. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I was invited on false terms. No, so. anti-pedophile oh, oh, okay, podcast. Okay, okay. Anti-pedophile <laughs> podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, we recent it's change an in anti-political, management. anti-pedophile <laughs> podcast. Well, I, here's the thing. Uh, you know, I saw I saw someone tweet, and not to not to ever start a sentence like that, but I have to <laughs> because that is what happened. Uh, 
a couple of weeks ago that uh, there's like a weird thing where everybody for some reason just thinks their country's Green Party sucks yeah. and like Green Parties in other countries are good. Yeah, and always. That got, oh, that what? got me thinking. Everyone thinks the European Green Parties are like these like socialist parties, basically. It, ironically, the American Green Party, as fucking cuckoo bananas as it is, uh, is probably the most left wing Green Party <laughs> in the world. Yeah, I don't even know about that. But yeah, I, I remember that tweet. It was like Julia Dampaus who tweeted that. And I, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, because everyone's like, yeah, but the, maybe these greens are all right. I mean, yeah, they're not great. But, you know, maybe, they, I mean, they are uh, in some ways the most like degenerate aspect of of the establishment. Um, mm, yeah, and yeah. like have nothing to offer people whatsoever. And their growth Bike now, and, like in Germany, is literally just grabbing all the kind of basically liberals who maybe want to have a social conscience and drawing them in. And so it just acts as a repository of the collapse of the social Democrats, for example. Uh, Absolutely. It's, yeah, no, it's a disaster everywhere. And they're even terrible on climate change because they end up backing, uh, you know, kind of being anti-nuclear, which is probably the only solution to actually dealing with climate change. So yeah, no, you're, you're, you're talking to about nuking America, right? Um, yeah, I mean not <laughs> now, but I have spoken about that in the past, and we can we can take that up again if, you, if you're if, if you're interested. Because I am very pro nuclear, but that's that's what I mean. <laughs> that's what I assume everyone else means by it. Too. No, I'm, I've adopted I've adopted MAGA actually. Make America go away. That's my um, that's my <laughs> slogan. <laughs> Brace is just pro-nuclear, but it's giving Israel more nukes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, from a B-52. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I got to say, I, the book, a little depressing there, Alex. Mm, I have been accused of that before. Um, I, I maybe am sometimes a gloom merchant. You know what? We've been accused of it before, though, too. Yeah, True. But uh, but overall, I enjoyed it. Made uh, got the old noggin joggin. Yeah, I really. It's 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 a good read. It's a great read. Thanks. Recommend it. We do finish on a, on a positive note, though, right? Yeah, you do. Uh, we finish on a positive note that the that the discourse the discourse, index the index there is no index. That's a lie. People do not be dissuaded from buying the book because you think there's an index. There is no index. <laughs> um, so it's not one of those nerdy books with indexes. Um, Oh yeah, sorry. Oh no, sorry. Citations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We do have a little bit of those. Um, no, but the, but the, the the positive point is about the pandemic. Not mm, that sounds bad. Let's start that again. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what the pandemic has brought to light, put it that way, mm. is that we have talked about essential workers, something that was completely forgotten about, and it's inverted the mm -hmm. labor hierarchy because it was always said that you know creatives and CEOs and financiers were the important people in the economy and the economy couldn't run without them and the pandemic has made us realize well we all we knew all along but you know has made has brought back to light the idea that there are essential workers who make the world go round and without it it doesn't work and that's kind of good and i hope that we remember that and hold on to that well the book is a great read we're gonna we'll post a link to it um and the show notes as well as the peace in american affairs which i highly recommend people especially people interested in Brazilian politics and the history of Brazil. Take a look at, read some great stuff in there. Um, and subscribe, listen to Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast. I'm a subscriber. I also really loved the series you guys did on the Cal on like Californication, the um, kind of like uh, California kind of hippie, holistic, you know, psychopolitical craziness out here that we have in the West. I'm not. I, it, it's been a minute since I listened to it, so I'm not saying it correctly. But it, it's a it's a really great series. I highly recommend it. Um, 
Yeah, thank you so much, Alex. No, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Um, should do it again sometime. I'd love to. Welcome to the outro. This is the outro of the podcast. Damn, Liz. That's <laughs> sonorous. Have you thought of... Uh, oh my God, I don't know what to say. Featuring on songs? Listeners, we've tried intros about four times now. I don't fucking want to do it. This is the second time we've tried an outro, so I went with the jingle. Can we just do a new structure for our podcast? I'm no. sick of it. No. Can we start with the intro or whatever, like the song? No. You got to do the thing, and then the intro, and then outro. Uh, we, then mm, this is the outro. Welcome to the outro. Now I feel like we're, I'm going to loop, and this is never going to end. Yeah, just like Putting my history. foot down. I'm putting my fucking foot down. My name is goddamn... Listen... I know there's a lot of pictures that have emerged of me on yachts in the Mediterranean with a lot of, well, very fat men. And I want to say it's not what it looks like. There were also female prostitutes there. <laughs> want to be very clear on that. Okay. Well, I'm Liz. My name's Brace. We are joined by producer Young Chomsky. This has been Tronon, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Let's go, Shirley.